great book of 1 Peter. Peter has a lot to say about suffering and how to deal with that. It's much of the idea of the entire book. As we've come to chapter 4, he approaches it from a couple different angles, but he, he talks about the, the attitude that we have in approaching life, and especially the relationship of suffering and sin. And then he develops the idea of, okay, what's life supposed to look like in, in light of all this? And so beginning with verse 1, he says, therefore, and he's just been talking about, you know, everything that Jesus did for us. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's a lot right there. On the basis of the fact that Jesus suffered for us, he says, arm yourselves, that is, take up weapons, but the weapon that you're taking up is your mind. Literally, you know, it says arm yourselves with the same mind, but really that word isn't just the word mind. It really is a word that would be better translated mindset or frame of mind, and it, almost attitude. And so he says, since Jesus has done that for us, you get ready to expect that to happen to you. And the re- one of the reasons he gives here is because the one who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I don't know about you, but suffering hasn't always caused me to cease from sin. That's kind of a, a difficult thing. But the one thing that we have to admit right away, life hurts. Life is painful. Suffering is a part of life. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care how you live life. Life is going to hurt. It's supposed to hurt. As soon as you start thinking that something's wrong because you hurt, you've missed what life is just like. And until we take on the frame of mind that says, okay, suffering is a part of this deal, and I'm not going to fight against that all the time, then you'll be constantly frustrating yourself fighting against something that you can't change. One of the keys to life is to accept life the way it is and and realize it is what it is, now what can I do? It's not necessarily just this resolve to go, I guess I'll just lay here and take it. But it's the idea of, of stopping this expectation that we have that life doesn't hurt, and that if it hurts, there must be something wrong with it. Now, as he, as he goes on here uh, and says he connects suffering with cessation of sin or with getting over sin. Now, let's read on to kind of see what he might have in mind. He says, in order that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God. There's a transition that happens where through accepting suffering, we move from living according to our lusts and living according to the will of God, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, that's a word that means literally incontinence, not being able to control your bowels, but it, it's meant as a, uh, sorry about that, <laughs> Greek is ugly sometimes, but uh, 
It's the idea that you just can't control yourself. Um, I could develop a whole theme on that, but we'll just move on. Um, <laughs> lewdness, lusts, that's passions, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, just this gross, immoral lifestyle. And in regard to these, people who are doing this, they think it's strange that you don't run with them. Literally, they're astonished that you won't do what they do in the same flood of dissipation. The word dissipation is just the word sozo, which means save, and the word, the prefix a, which is not. So there's this flood of unsaved behavior, and they don't figure out why you don't want to do it, and they speak evil of you when you don't do it. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So how in the world does suffering bring about less sin? And what does sin have to do with suffering? First of all, think about those particular sins that he picked out. Um, people who go and, and try to drink themselves into a stupor, people who go out and party and create kind of artificial joy, people who are just doing whatever they feel like doing at the time. Um, why do people do this stuff? You know, you, you think of something like going out and getting bombed out of your mind and then getting sick and then having a real bad headache in the morning. How did that ever become such a great tradition in the world? Who first got the idea, wow, that's cool. I mean, you don't have a whole bunch of people who beat themselves over the head. So why do people do what they do in some of these areas? And, and, and the truth is when it talks about pain and suffering, so much of the suffering that we go through is because of some of these stupid things that we do. And yet, think about it. Almost every sin, perhaps every sin, the reason people do it is because they think it will help the pain go away. They feel like somehow, if I do this, I'll feel better. And so a lot of these sins are connected to an unwillingness to accept the fact that life is just supposed to hurt. Now, the irony of the whole thing is it hurts a whole lot more after you indulge in something like this and this kind of behavior, it is very destructive. And so most people, if they look at their lives, all of us, we look at our life and we look at our pain and we realize some of our pain is due to things that we did to try to make the pain go away. And it ends up making it worse. You who have dealt with chronic medical problems know how this works. You know, you're, you take medication in order to alleviate the pain of a condition. And so often the medications have then greater side effects that cause you to need to take other medication, and it's like you're chasing your tail. It's the same way morally. And, I, and you know, before we judge too heavily for people who are out there getting drunk every night, you know, let's think about the kinds of things that we might do to make the pain go away. Maybe for us it's like, oh, I wouldn't dream of going out there and going to an orgy. I wouldn't dream about going out and getting drunk. So all I do is at the end of the day, I'm sick of the pain, so I just turn on the TV and I sit there and I devote my life to seeing who's going to be America's next star. And, and so I sit there for a few hours voting for the person that I want 
to win the show. And I've done that. I've spent, I voted for Sanjaya over 300 times the night he got <laughs> kicked off American Idol. And then after that, I've never voted for anyone since. That just made me mad. But, <laughs> but we inoculate ourselves with, and anesthetize ourselves, really, as we just sit there. And you might go, oh, man, I've had a rough day. If I was a drinking person, I'd go to a bar right now and get drunk. I get why people do that. But, but you know, I'm a Christian, so instead, I'm going to go load myself up with a gallon of ice cream. Is it, I mean, consequences, you know, might be different, but ultimately, isn't that the same thing? Isn't everything that the Bible tells us not to do really helping us to know that these methods are not going to stop the pain? And as long as we don't ever get the mindset, the attitude that says, okay, it's supposed to hurt, it's gonna hurt, I accept that. And I'm not going to make my first order of business, how can I make the pain stop? As soon as we can get that into our minds, we are on the way toward learning something that God wants us to understand. And so, as Peter says here, yeah, the people who are still living that way, just drugging themselves and, and, and exciting themselves and doing everything in order to try to minimize the discomforts of life, they look at you when you quit doing that, and they're like, that's weird, because you're not doing what we are doing. Because, see, once you accept that God is in control and that pain is sometimes inevitable, what happens is now your sin is decreasing, because you just don't need to fall back on all of those things that you used to do in order to make the hurt go away. You just go, okay, I guess this is going to hurt. And that's a, an important place to start. And it's a good thing that Jesus didn't, you know, when he was in the middle of his agony, just go, you know what, forget the whole thing. I, I would feel much better right now if I went flying. <laughs> if I went and had a drink. If I, you know, no, he, he continued on through and never sinned because he was willing to absorb the pain to take the discomfort, to deal with it. And so Peter says, somehow, you're going to have to find the same mindset that he found, or you're going to spend your life trying to party yourself, or TV yourself, or ice cream and sugar yourself, or extreme sport yourself, or whatever it is that you do to try to make you forget the pain. You're going to do those things, and those are going to bring sometimes greater pain into your life than the original pain. And so, and you know, it, it, people who go out and cheat, it's like, man, life hurts, there's difficulty, this looks like an easy fix. It's never an easy fix. It always brings just un, 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 unbelievable pain. Um, as much as going and getting drunk or anything else does, people do this stuff, they live by their lusts, hoping to make it stop hurting, and Peter is saying, you know what? You need to start with this assumption. Get your mind ready. This is going to hurt. It hurts no matter what. It's just that you can increase the hurt by responding to it with these quick fixes, or you can accept the hurt and find out that actually, in reality, some of the pain is, is really worth it. 
And so, but he says, people aren't going to understand. And not only that, these people who are enjoying their sin are going to be giving you a hard time and accusing you and picking on you and laughing at you and because they don't get what you're doing. And at the same time, they look at you not doing what they're doing and they feel convicted because they can't bring themselves to believe that they could be where you are, that they could find joy apart from all these things. And so they try to bring you down. They'll want to be tripping you up. And he doesn't say, so go judge them. So go tell them what's wrong with them. That's not our job. Our job is not to judge, to condemn, to point fingers at. He says, they will give, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So no matter who you are, you answer to God. The answer to God, what I want us to understand is, here's why they do what they do. So it shouldn't bother us that people are living that way. It should not surprise us when even somebody who loves Jesus gets to the point where they can't handle the pain anymore and they fall into some of these sins. This is what people do when they have not armed themselves. And that's why he says to arm yourself with this mindset, this mindset of accepting the inevitability of suffering. And, and of not compromising in the face of it, that's the mindset that protects us from the sins that ultimately will destroy us now and in the future. And then as he says, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. He just talked about the living and the dead. Even the people whose lives are over, they're going to be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So people whose lives are over have made a decision. Am I going to just live my life in the flesh and face judgment, or am I going to walk in the Spirit and face glory? And he said, they've made that decision, but the reason the gospel was preached, the reason the good news was presented is so that people would have a choice. And so Peter says, you have a choice. Do you really want... It's going to hurt either way. So do you want to try to drug yourself and... And, you know, just get your mind off of it with these distractions that end up hurting you. Or do you want to deal with it, accept it, realize this is a part of God's life? You know, and and it isn't even just some of the common sins that we think of. Every sin, whether pride, think about anger. Why do people get angry and blow up at people? Because something hurts. And When we hurt, we often want to injure back. And so when somebody does something and you yell at them, it makes you feel better for a short time. You know, you feel like, okay, I'm glad I got that off my chest. And then you feel way worse, and you drive people away from you. Often people lose the ones that they love because they're constantly harping at them and, and just being angry with them all the time, and then they end up being alone, and that hurts a lot more than being with someone even in a difficult relationship. And so Peter says, figure this out. Don't spend your time trying to stop the pain. Pain is not going to stop. But you can minimize pain that you'll bring upon yourself by giving up on these artificial means of trying to make the pain go away. So in, in that respect, when we get the same mindset that Jesus did, we have some tools that will help us 
starting with acceptance and going, okay, at least I'm not going to have pain that's not necessary. At least, okay, I have a wound. I'm not going to poke it and throw salt in it because I think that'll somehow make it feel better. And, and so that's what he's developing here in these first six verses. But then he shifts gears a little bit going into verse 7. And a lot of people wouldn't even see how these passages fit together, but they fit together really importantly. Because after describing the old way of dealing with pain and presenting the possibility that we can take on a mindset that responds to it differently, whereby we really are transformed, now he says, but... And here he's going to say, here's what this life looks like. But the end of all things is at hand. It's almost over. The time, the pain, it's limited. It's so important to understand when something hurts, if at least you know it's going to end. And it's nice, if you knew when it was going to end, it would make it pretty easy. I remember before I had my neck surgery, I I had this thing where when I put my head straight back, I just had excruciating pain down my left arm. And so like a man, instead of getting it fixed, for years I just didn't put my head up straight. It's like, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. But... Ultimately, I'm like, okay, I need to get this fixed. And so before surgery, they had to put me into an MRI. Now, a lot of people dread MRIs because, oh, I get claustrophobic. The no- that part doesn't bother me at all. You, you put me in a booth where nobody's bothering me. I'm really happy. I don't care. But, but the problem was to get in that thing, my head had to be straight back. And it was like somebody was jabbing me all the way down my arm and just poking those nerves. Like, think of the worst toothache you've ever had running down your arm. And I had to stay there for 50 minutes. And 50 minutes seemed like an eternity. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying not to scream and give them satisfaction, you know. And I'm and I just laying there, and it's like, this is the worst pain I've ever had in my life. And, but I could watch the clock, and I could see the time ticking down. When I got to about 40 minutes, I'm like, okay, there's just 10 minutes left. It's almost over. And it's funny, it still hurt every bit as much, but I was willing for it to go. And finally, when it got down to like five minutes left, I was almost feeling like I could take another five minutes. I'm I'm doing it. I'm I'm making this happen. And that's the, the reason why the scriptures are constantly telling us that Jesus could come at any time. The suffering, whatever suffering you're going through, it's not forever. There is a suffering that will be forever. But for the child of God, that's not the case. So, yeah, maybe you'll suffer so bad you go, I think this is going to kill me. And ultimately you realize, if it did, would that be so bad? If it did, that would deliver me completely from my pain because you won't feel any pain after you're with the Lord. And so Peter's reminding them, look, The end of all things is at hand. Nothing's going to last that you're worried about. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That word for serious, that's an unfortunate translation, really. And sometimes we think that, you know, God just wants to tell us to be serious. Don't smile, don't laugh, don't goof off. And, you know, most of us, many of us have been told this all our lives. It's like one thing when you're you know, a little kid in school, and they're going, be serious. But it's pathetic when you're 57 and people are still telling you to be serious. 
But that's not what he's saying. The word here means to be of a sound mind. That is, to be sane, to be clear-headed, be serious, and, you know, so be, be sane. And the word watchful is a word that, that really means um, sober, literally not drunk. And so he's using it in contrasting this behavior that he was just referring to of party people. So he's saying be sane and sober. And the idea of sober in the scriptures doesn't just mean not drinking, but it also means just keeping a clear head about you. So basically he's saying, look, you need to focus. You need to pull your thinking in and think within the realm of reality. Jesus could come back at any time. This is no time to be wasting yourself trying to get wasted so that you don't feel whatever pain is out there. Instead, you need to be clear-headed to do what you're being called to do. And, he says, to be watchful or sober in your prayers. This is the time to pray. This is the time to take our concerns to God. It's not to, how can I deaden the pain? How can I avoid it? How can I weasel around it? Hey, when we hurt, the first thing that we do is we take it to the Lord. James says, you have not because you ask not. And so certainly anything that hurts us, it should be a given we should pray about it. Give it to him. Maybe God's just waiting for us to pray so that he can touch us and heal us or to deliver us and help us. So, you know, keep a clear head and pray. But above all things, he goes, here's the bottom line. Have fervent, intense, passionate love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. He's quoting love covering a multitude of sins. He's quoting over in Proverbs chapter 10, where Solomon said that. Now again, he's bringing in this idea of sins. So he's saying a response to sin is love. Instead of sin is love. And an intense love, a passionate love, and love covers a multitude of sins. You know this as you raise your kids, and they sin all the time, and yet you love them. And I'm always amazed to see a mother with little children because you watch them, and they have so much love for their kids that it seems like the kid's behavior just hardly affects them on a good day. I've seen moms flipping out too, and that's understandable. (laughs) You have every reason to. But think of what you put up with because of love with your kids, with your spouse, with other people around you. Peter says, a time of suffering is a time to love. And that love will cover over all sorts of sins. We sometimes don't like the idea of covering sins at all. We think that they need to be shouted from the rooftops, that they need to be exposed, that we need to go find sin and blow the whistle. But that's not God's heart. Now, every sin will end up being exposed, no doubt about it. What you do in secret will be shouted from the rooftops, but not by us. We're not to do that. Our job should be to love other people in such a way that the sin is alleviated. We should never cover up sin on our own. Sin needs to be covered up with love. 
not just concealing you know, sin and allowing it to fester, but by loving someone through a situation so that your love actually makes up for some of the damage that's been done by your sin and by other people's sins. If you, if you stop loving because of suffering, you're going to stop loving. So many people, it's why people can't stay married nowadays. Because marriage hurts. Yesterday, I was asked to share a few words of wisdom at a, at a wedding of some kids that I love. I've known since they were little kids. And, and one of the things I told them is, marriage hurts. Expect that. Don't think there's something wrong with your marriage or you married the wrong person because it hurts. It's supposed to hurt. Um, and, and that's what Peter's trying to get through to here is that love is the proper response to pain. If you're going to hurt anyway, you might as well use that as an opportunity to love. And that will take care of, gloss over, even, even in terms of our own lives, our own sins, the multitude of sins, if you loved the way you should, you wouldn't sin the way you do. And so often we can go, well, you know, yeah, I sinned, but it was because there wasn't enough love covering my sin. No, it was your lack of love that caused you to sin. Own it. Take responsibility for it. And rather than just grovel in it, begin to commit yourself to saying that, okay, the main thing in my life is sin. I understand I started to sin because the pain was getting to me. Well, this didn't help. So love, and that love will supersede and be greater. And that's why he says, this is above all things. Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now he begins to talk a little more about what that love looks like. And he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, it's hard for us to, in talking about these big sins and suffering and love, hospitality seems like such a lightweight thing. In fact, we've re reduced that word, hospitality, almost to just be, yeah, we hire people to, at the hospitality room who will make sure there's enough peanuts and sandwiches and everything there for you. And that's what we call hospitality nowadays. Hospitality, in our culture, we've lost even the sense of the word because we live in our little houses. Nobody has a front porch. Nobody even knows who their neighbors are. They change so much. And, and, and you know, when we get home, this brilliant invention of the attached garage causes you to not have to interact with anyone. The garage door opener opens the door. You drive in. You walk into your house, and nobody even has to see you. You can be... You know, and then in the morning, you get up, you go in the garage, you get your car, you back out, you close the door, you drive away. So hospitality isn't something that we're really known for. And besides that, people are so busy that the idea of having people over, the idea of getting together with others is something that's difficult for us as well because we're just programmed to death. Now, the word hospitality here is really, I think, a beautiful Greek word. It's two Greek words put together. It's the, the word philos, which means love or friendship or fellowship, put together with the word xenos, which is the word for foreigner, someone who's different than you, someone who's from somewhere else. So philoxenos is the Greek word here for, for um, 
you know, for, for uh, hospitality. Now, the easiest people for me to love are people who are a lot like me. In fact, if I ever found someone who was just like me, boy, would we click. <laughs> you know, they th- everything I think's funny, they think's funny. Everything I like to do, they like to do. Everything. You know, but the truth is that person doesn't exist because God makes us all unique. So here's what I do. I try to find people who are as much like me as possible. And so people who appreciate me, I admire their taste. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, people who are like so different, they think I'm from another planet. They don't get what I'm talking about. They miss all the jokes. I'm like, yeah, you're weird. You're different. <laughs> Somebody comes up after church and goes, you know, Dave, some of your funniest stuff nobody gets, but I'm just back there cracking up. I love that. <laughs> but here's the thing. Is that really love at all or is it just selfishness? The love that we are called to love each other with is a love that actually appreciates and honors differences, that says, a foreigner, this is awesome, this is great. Now, this can be literally with people who are from other places. Boy, and what a hotbed of controversy it is in our nation right now. How do we deal with immigrants? How do we deal with people who are coming in from another country? Well, you know what? If, if it's your job to determine those policies, then you can do your job. For me, I just want to love people who come here. It's what made America great was that we embraced people who were different. Every, I don't see a whole lot of casino owners in here, so we were all immigrants at one point or another. Oh, some of you got it. But, <laughs> but you know, we all immigrated here somehow, and we're given an opportunity. Now, again, I'm not going to discuss immigration policy or any of that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is, what's our heart for people who are from other places? Do we care? Will we welcome and love them? Will we embrace them as brothers? And then how do we respond to people who are in other countries? How do we love people who are from such a different culture, speak a different language, I mean, do we even care enough to learn a few words in another language so that we can try to communicate with them? Is that even a part of our thing? Now, when I periodically I'll go travel to another country, and it's not because I think my teaching is really effective when done with an interpreter. It's not. You know, I'll go and, and I teach the best I can, but it's weird for me to have to stop and wait while somebody jabbers in another language. And then I've lost my train of thought, and I'm looking at the translator going, I don't know if I trust this guy anyway. He could be making up his own message. And every time I do it, I'm frustrated, and I go, why am I even doing this? And I'll tell you why I do it. It is not at all because I think that my message put into another language is just something they need to hear. There are people in those countries who could do what I do much better than I do because they understand the culture. Their illustrations aren't going to be about, you know, American Idol and things like that, that they have no idea what it is. But I've learned that people appreciate when you come from America and go all the way somewhere, you went out of your way for them. And if all I can do is go to another country and say, the people over in America love you, and that's why we're here. That's why we're trying to do what we do, to communicate this hospitality 
is so powerful and, and so important. And so still, I will be going to El Salvador for the Central American Conference this year and over to Hong Kong for a quick trip to the, to the Asian Conference. Um, and it's, it's simply because I want to show people who are in another country that we love them. Now, our, uh, one of our pastors, Jeff Henneforth, just recently moved to Cambodia. And Jeff had been with us to Cambodia. He had gone to other countries with us, to Thailand and other places. And I always saw Jeff like came alive when he was in another country. And he's a guy who just is hospitable in this way. Now, frankly, here in our country, Jeff was kind of shy. You'd think, I don't think he likes me. But when he goes to another country, he's just, he comes to life. And so now he's over there starting a school of ministry uh, on the border of Cambodia, and it's amazing to think of the opportunities that he's having as now he is trying to learn the Khmer language, and he called me in this last, well, it was Wednesday night, our time, um, he had a baptism, and it was on the military base for military officers in the Cambodian army, and they had 400 people that signed up to be baptized, on the military base. We couldn't do that on our military base, separation of church and state, but they did it there. And Jeff was kind of hesitant as he contacted me before the thing because he goes, they told me I needed to wear long pants and a long sleeve shirt. And I go, oh, what, are they real traditional? He goes, no, the leeches. (laughs) So we prayed on Wednesday night for him. And he didn't get any leech bites, so it worked out good. They had a beautiful time at the baptism. But do you understand what it means for someone? Jeff was, Jeff's a brilliant kid. I knew him from when he was a little kid at MCA growing up, and he ended up going to Georgetown Law School, and there's so many opportunities he had in life, but instead, he's there in this third world country baptizing people in a mud puddle of leeches because he loves foreigners. That's hospitality, and that says a lot to people. That makes a powerful statement. And when we can learn to care cross-culturally, then maybe we can do a better job in our own culture with people who are a little weird or a little different. We are called to be lovers of foreigners. We're called to be those who care regardless of whether or not it fits or not. Now, it does hurt. And you have leeches in Cambodia, and when you minister here, you will meet plenty of leeches as well. (laughs) And they're biting you and yapping at you and causing all kinds of trouble for you. You know it. Every day you're dealing with leeches. But how do you handle that pain? How do you handle that discomfort? Do you love enough that that's not going to hold you back? Now... Need to keep moving here. So be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And that just really messes it up. Because I can take anything as long as I can gripe about it. You know? <laughs> griping seems to make it endurable, but, but griping makes it not look like hospitality. I really have to watch this when I go to other countries because I love America. I love everything about America. And I go to another country and you look at the food they give you, and it's, some people are like, oh, you know, exotic foods. I don't like exotic foods. <laughs> I really don't. And, 
So you go there, and they're all proud of what they put in front of you, and you're just like, oh, man. And it would be real easy to grumble. And I have on occasions. Usually I just come back here and complain about it. But, you know, I, you adapt. You learn. I, what I've, the great thing I discovered was those little packets of Del Taco sauce. Um, I, whenever I travel, I take a bunch of those with me. And I found, I don't care what they put in front of me, with some of that Del Taco sauce, it tastes like a taco. <laughs> but he says, love strangers and quit griping about it. This is just a part of life. People are weird. Deal with it and be loving to them. It's going to blow their minds. It's going to make a difference. And then he says, as each of you has received a gift, the word there, charisma, same word for spiritual gifts over in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, everybody has a spiritual gift, and minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold, or literally the many-colored grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he says, life hurts, but you have a gift. You have something that God has given you that will allow you to minister to others. And so he said, don't let the pain keep you from using your gifts. Don't let the pain keep you from fellowship. Sometimes when you're hurting really bad, you just don't want to be around other Christians. You really just don't want to be involved. And, and I think about this as I, as I constantly try to encourage people to get involved in home fellowships. There are some people who have so much pain in their life, they're afraid to get involved in a home fellowship. They're afraid that people are going to get them down on the floor and force them to, you know, confess to all their worst sins. And, you know, and so it's like, no, I just think it would hurt too much. I don't want touchy-feely. And really, our home fellowships are nothing like that, most of them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but in the midst of the pain, you have to find a way to minister. And God's grace is many-colored. God's grace is really... A variety. And so there are a ton of different ways to use your gifts for the body. And there are some people who have gifts that just aren't using them because they haven't gone to the trouble of finding a way in which to do that. There are other people who we look at their gifts and go, wow, this is amazing. Now he says, if your gift is a speaking gift, then do it like you're an oracle of God. What you say, say it as if it's coming from God. The only way for that to happen is if you're listening to God, hearing from Him, getting the message that He wants you to share. But He says, no matter what your ministry is, do it. Serve. And why does He remind them of this? Because ministry is painful. It hurts. It's, it's really um, complicated. And it makes us uncomfortable. And many people who minister and then are hurt end up deciding, I'm not going to do that again. But life hurts. And the only thing that hurts more than ministering is having a gift and not ministering and not doing what God has called you to do. And so he says, no, this is what you need to do. Now, this is why, you know, this last year from, from Easter to summer, 
we tried to shut down everything else in the church, and I quit my Wednesday night study for 10 weeks, and I said, I want everyone to get involved in a home fellowship. In my mind, a home fellowship is the best way possible to get involved in the lives of others. And so I wanted people to at least have a chance to try to discover that. And, and we will continue to remind people of that until you get sick of hearing about it. And I'll still do it. And here's why. The Christian life is not about sitting there listening to someone teach a study. I mean, that's primarily, let's face it, our church is mostly people coming here on Sunday morning, band plays some songs, take the offering, and then I get up here and talk until it's late and they're mad at me because we're running over, and, and then, okay, you get to go home, you come by, shake my hand, good sermon, and it's over. That's not what the Christian life is about. That's an important part of it, and I hope I give you something practical and helpful. I hope you don't just leave here on Sunday morning going, oh, we know three new Greek words today. You know what? <laughs> You can go get on the internet and download thousands of podcasts that will be better than anything I've ever said and listen to them all day long. But life as a Christian means putting that into practice. It means loving in a practical and personal way, connecting with others, ministering to others. And that's why to me, as much as I love teaching on Wednesday nights and I'm teaching on Wednesday nights now, um, that's why I was willing to give that up. Because more important than me teaching is you living. And, and I wanted to see that happen. And I saw it happen in amazing ways. Now, it was hard because I had people who were really mad that I did what I did. And there were people who accused me openly saying, you're you know, turning away from the Word of God to, go to, you know, go to parties at people's houses. Okay, I'll take that because that's what the Bible tells the church to do and to be. It's not just a teaching center. Now, how this worked out, like I'll give you a for instance. I have a friend, I had a friend who um, was, had been a walking with the Lord Christian for over 40 years, and he was a bass player. Kevin Thompson was his name. He was a bass player for the Sweet Comfort Band, one of the greatest Christian bands when Christian music first started coming up. And Kevin and his wife had gone through a tough time, and he had, a few years ago, become quadriplegic. And they started coming to our church, and I would see him every week, and it just looked like nobody was really connecting with them. But when I pushed everyone to get in a home fellowship, it turns out we had one home fellowship on Sunday night at Brad and Terry Green's house, and they have a daughter who is disabled. And so they have ramps and everything, and so Kevin and Robin began to attend their home fellowship on Sunday nights. And I was thrilled. But after a few weeks, Kevin got really sick. He ended up going to be with the Lord. But as he was there in the intensive care unit, I, I went to see him on Sunday afternoon when he went in. And Sunday evening, as I was leaving to go do our fellowship, here comes his whole home fellowship. And they met in the waiting room for ICU. And they brought all their food in, and they take turns going in and praying for him. And then finally, as he went to be with the Lord, the, the home fellowship arranged for the memorial service. They got the meals for everybody. They did all that stuff. Robin needed a bunch of stuff moved. They did it. And these people were fairly new to the church, but the church did it. We didn't have somebody in the office going, okay, you need this, this, and this, and we make a program to do it. It happens when people do what Peter is saying to do, serve. 
minister, connect. And so for me, that will always be something. I could tell you a hundred stories you know, of just great things that God has done. Now, you know, you may be sitting here going, you know what, I don't want anybody involved in my life, and if I'm in the hospital, I don't care if anybody visits me. You know, nobody's going to force you to do what God commands you to do, but we're commanded to do this. And for Peter, this is essential in the suffering life. Did that make Kevin not suffer? Did that make his wife and his sons not feel bad when he went to be with the Lord? No, of course not. But that pain was going to be there anyway. And yet in the middle of it, there was this sweet interlacing of little lights of concern all around in a, in a really powerful way that was life-changing for a lot of people who experienced it, including the people who were there ministering to them. So that's what Peter's talking about. Just do what God calls you to do. And God will be glorified through Jesus Christ, and he is the one who owns all the glory and dominion forever and ever. It's all about him ultimately. Suffering, you bet, it's going to happen. And doing what God has called you to do, that's going to hurt too. It always will. Ministry is painful. But that's the choice that we make in order to say, I used to live my life in this way, because it made life bearable. And now I'm living my life this way and I'm connected with eternity. My suffering makes a difference now. I, I, I see it. It really, it's something. There's something significant in this. I'm actually being used by God. There's a poem that has usually been credited to Mother Teresa, and she probably rewrote it. It was originally written by another person, but Mother Teresa had this written on the wall. She was a, she was a little nun who worked on the streets of Calcutta for most of her life. She won the Nobel Prize back when it mattered. And, um, <laughs> but this is what she loved and had on her wall. And it's really the message that Peter's trying to get across People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And that's, that's the heart of Peter. He's going, life hurts. And doing what he calls you to do hurts. But do it anyway. Love anyway. Care anyway. That's how you arm yourselves with the mindset that Jesus had who suffered horribly because we were worth it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and this reminder from Peter. Today there are some people here who are Many of us are in the middle of some kind of pain and suffering. So comfort our hearts and remind us that it's supposed to be this way until you return. 
which could happen at any moment. But Lord, help us to consistently do what we're called to do anyway. Help us to love and to love strangers and to use our gifts despite the pain, despite how it hurts. Help us to just love anyway. Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, I pray that today you would help them to understand that they have a choice. They'll have to answer to you ultimately whether they accepted your many-colored grace or whether they rejected it, but help them to see nothing that they do will ever stop the pain. It will only create greater pain, but they can live their life on a higher plane, walking with you and knowing you. So Lord, we thank you for the fact that you understand and you went first. Help us to walk as you would have us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, I'd love to be able to tell you that all you need to do is come up here and pray a prayer and all the pain will stop. I can tell you this, if you will give your life to Jesus Christ, there are certain pains that are going to stop, the things you're doing to yourself, but ultimately, you give your life to Christ, life is still going to hurt, but it's also going to matter. The pain will be worth it. It'll, you'll find that life can be better than it was before. And so if you're tired of hurting for no reason, um, come on down during this last song.